We read about the martyrs for Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Welcome to Souls Under the Altar a program that reviews the stories of God's persecuted from the past and the present. Your host for this program is Etienne McClintock. Matthias was the replacement apostle. He was chosen just prior to Pentecost to fill the vacancy among the twelve created by Judas through his betrayal of Christ and abrupt departure by suicide. Based on the requirements that each of the candidates had to meet as mentioned in Acts chapter 1 verse 21 and 22, which was an association with Jesus as a disciple from Jesus' baptism to his ascension, it is reasonably certain that Matthias was one of the 70 evangelists the Lord sent out in Luke chapter 10. In fact, Eusebius, that well-known Christian historian, includes him among the 70 and mentions an apocryphal gospel attributed to him. After his appointment in the first chapters of Acts, Matthias is not mentioned by name again in the New Testament. But then again, neither are most of the original 12 disciples. Luke based his account in Acts on the development of the early church primarily on the ministry of Peter and then Paul. For Matthias' role, we rely on the general participation of the 12 in the affairs of the church in Jerusalem, and we also turn to the various accounts of tradition that include Matthias. As one of the apostles, he was under the public pressure of persecution that broke out when Saul and others decided that they needed to stamp out the followers of Jesus. Matthias was one of those apostles whose missionary engagement took him north. Sebastopol, or present-day Sebastopol, on the northern side of the Black Sea, is frequently mentioned as one of his destinations. Eventually, Matthias appeared to have made his way back to Jerusalem, where he was stoned to death. In contrast to Matthias and most of the other apostolic figures, little confusion exists about the place of Paul's death. Paul always had a passion to preach the gospel in Rome, and he was also martyred there. Throughout the book of the Acts and his letters, Paul conveys an unmistakable sense that his time was short and that he was grateful for every moment he was given. Paul understood God's grace not simply as a great theological concept, but also as his own reason for living. He appreciated God's grace because he knew he needed so much of it. Paul states in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 to 16, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, meaning a violent, arrogant man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus." This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance 
that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. What Paul is saying here is that if God's grace and mercy could save a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a murderer like him, God's exceedingly abundant grace can save anybody. His final thoughts had little to do with regret and much to do with the satisfaction that flows from grace-drenched living. He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to 8. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. While he lived, Paul certainly traveled broadly, proclaiming the gospel everywhere he went. Perhaps his statement to the Colossians sums up his heart the best. We read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. One of the greatest ironies in Paul's life is that he accomplished a lot to spread the gospel even when he was persecuting the church. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 and 4 tells us that Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the gospel. Paul's rabbit efforts to hunt down Christians in and around Jerusalem scattered believers to the wind, planting the gospel seed everywhere they went. Truly, God used even the plans and efforts of evil men to accomplish His will as is aptly demonstrated by Saul when he was a persecutor. More than that, God even used persecution in the church to bring confidence, remove fear, and give boldness to the message. Paul, while in prison, wrote to the church in Philippi, and in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 14, he spoke about the benefits the gospel had received because of his persecution. Paul said, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ, and most of the brethren in the Lord have become confident by my chains and much more bold to speak the word without fear. Once Paul turned around after his confrontation with Jesus on the road to Damascus, all the fiery intensity of the former life was now channeled into his efforts for Christ. He produced almost half the New Testament writings with the letters he sent to the churches. He set the standard for missionary living. He pioneered the evangelistic practices. He planted several dozen churches. 
He fearlessly applied God's love and grace to the non-Jewish world and was hounded for his faithfulness by those who should have cheered him on. The one who once persecuted Christ Jesus became the one who spent the rest of his days promoting Christ. Fortunately, Paul has given us an idea of the treatment he received as part and parcel of his work as an evangelist in the ancient world. While the following list of highlights may make us shudder at the cost paid by God's servant, it also serves as an indicator of the common experiences of those who follow Christ Jesus. They risk everything for the good news because the salvation that was brought for us on the cross by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is a price that is infinite and beyond any measure. The faith we claim has been delivered to us by many willing to pay the price of faithfulness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 24, Paul tells us, From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, and once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. It is incredible to hear about the persecution that Paul suffered. And we miss a significant lesson from Paul's life if we make suffering our goal. Suffering is not an accurate measure of obedience or faithfulness. Disobedience and faithlessness can also bring suffering. When suffering becomes a goal, pride is often the hidden motivation. Suffering is an unpredictable byproduct of obedience and faithfulness. But it's only a small part of an even greater unpredictable aspect of life in Christ. The example of the great martyrs of the faith is one of joyfulness and complete trust in God to sustain them. They didn't really suffering, but they didn't run from it either. We learn this as did Paul, the principles of radical contentment. Paul describes his contentment in Philippians chapter 4 from verse 11. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul did not let anything but God's Spirit hinder him from going to the ends of the earth. The timeline of his life, stories from tradition and references in Scripture to places such as his desire to minister in Spain allow us to consider that the range of his travels took him to many varied countries and territories. For example, we read in Romans chapter 15 from verse 22, 
for which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. Paul is writing to the church in Rome, letting them know that he has been wanting to visit them, but has been unable to do that up to that point in time. Verse 23 of Romans 15 says, But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whenever I take my journey to Spain, I will come to you, for I trust to see you in my journey, and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Whether Paul made it to Spain, we do not know. What we do know is that Paul's steps were directed by the Holy Spirit. We read in the book of Acts chapter 16 from verse 6, Now when they, that is Paul and Silas, had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So the Holy Spirit was directing their mission. They were planning to preach in Asia, and the Holy Spirit stopped them from doing so at that time. Verse 7, After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. The Holy Spirit again directs their steps and stops them from going to Bithynia. Now you may be curious to know why the Holy Spirit was prohibiting them to go to these places and preach the gospel there. And reading from verse 9, we see that God had other plans for them. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia stood and pleading with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. The vision was clearly from God. In God's providence, he was closing some doors and was opening another door and leading them through a vision given to Paul. How did Paul respond to this vision after two doors had been closed to ministry in other regions? Verse 10 tells us, Now after he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called them to preach the gospel there. The arrest of Paul in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, his imprisonment in Caesarea by the sea in Acts 23, and his dangerous journey to Rome in Acts 27 and 28 makes for fascinating reading. Once in Rome, Paul's labors were being blessed with many conversions for Christ. This greatly strengthened and encouraged the believers. However, clouds were gathering that threatened not only Paul's safety, but also the prosperity of the church. On his arrival in Rome, he had been placed in charge of the captain of the imperial guards. He was a man of justice and integrity. By his clemency, Paul was left comparatively free to pursue the work of the gospel. At that time, the Jews had become more active in their efforts against Paul. They found an able helper in the licentious woman whom Nero had made his second wife. She, being a Jewish proselyte, lent all her influence to aid their murderous designs against the champion of Christianity. Paul could hope for little justice from the Caesar to whom he had appealed. Nero was more debased in morals, more frivolous in character, and at the same time capable of more atrocities and cruelty than any ruler who had preceded him. The reins of government could have been entrusted to no one more despotic than Nero. The first year of his reign was marked by the poisoning of his younger stepbrother, who was the rightful heir to the throne. Nero had descended from one depth of vice and crime to another until he had murdered his own mother and also his first wife. There was no crime 
no vile act to which he would not stoop. In every noble mind he inspired only abhorrence and contempt. His abandoned wickedness created disgust and loathing, not only in those who saw it or heard about it, but even in many who were forced to share in his cruel, perverted vices. They were constantly afeared as to the baser depths of evil he would next suggest. Yet even such crimes as Nero's did not shake the allegiance of his subjects. He was acknowledged as the absolute ruler of the civilized world. More than this, he was made the recipient of divine honors and was worshipped as a god. From the viewpoint of human judgment, Paul's condemnation before such a judge as Nero was certain. However, Paul felt that as long as he was loyal to God, he had nothing to fear. The one who in the past had been his protector could shield him still from the malice of the Jews and from the power of Caesar Nero. At Paul's examination, the charges against him were not sustained and contrary to the general expectation and with the regard for justice wholly at variance with his character, Nero declared the prisoner guiltless. Paul's bonds were removed and he was again free to preach the gospel. Had his trial been delayed any further and had he been detained in Rome until the following year, he would doubtlessly have perished in the persecution which then took place. During Paul's imprisonment, the converts of Christianity become so numerous as to attract attention and arouse the enmity of the authorities. The anger of the emperor was especially excited by the conversion of members of his own household, and he soon found a pretext to make the Christians the object of his merciless cruelty. About this time, a terrible fire occurred in Rome, which nearly half of the city was burnt down. It was rumored that Nero himself had caused the flames to be kindled. To avert suspicion, he made a pretense of great generosity by assisting the homeless and the destitute. However, in spite of this pretense, he was accused of the crime. The people were excited and enraged, and in order to clear himself and also rid the city of a class whom he feared and hated, Nero turned the accusations upon the Christians. His device succeeded, and thousands of the followers of Christ Men, women, and children were cruelly put to death. Soon after his release, Paul had left Rome and he was spared from this terrible persecution. During his last interval of freedom, he diligently worked among the churches to establish greater union between the Greek and the Eastern churches. He labored to fortify the minds of the believers against the false doctrines that were creeping in to corrupt the faith. The trials and anxieties that Paul had endured had preyed upon his physical powers. The infirmities of age was upon him. He felt that he was now doing his last work, and as the time of his labor grew shorter, his efforts became more intense. There seemed to be no limit to his zeal. Resolute in purpose, prompt in action, strong in faith, he journeyed from church to church in many lands. By every means within his power, he worked to strengthen the hands of the believers. He desires that they should also do faithful work in winning souls to Jesus. 
Even during the trying time upon which they were then entering, he desired them to remain steadfast to the gospel, bearing faithful witness for Christ. Paul's work among the churches after his acquittal at Rome did not escape the observation of his enemies. From the beginning of the persecution under Nero, the Christians had become a proscribed sect everywhere. After a time, the unbelieving Jews came up with the idea of blaming Paul for the crime of instigating the fires of Rome. None of them thought for a moment that he was guilty, but they knew that such a charge made with some faint plausibility would seal his doom. Through their efforts, Paul was again arrested and hurried away to his final imprisonment. On his second voyage to Rome, Paul was accompanied by several of his former companions. Others earnestly desired to share his lot, but he refused to permit them to needlessly imperil their lives. The prospect before him was far less favorable than in his former imprisonment. Persecution under Nero had greatly lessened the number of Christians in Rome. Thousands had been martyred for their faith. Many had left the city, and those who remained there were greatly depressed and intimidated. Upon his arrival at Rome, Paul was placed in a gloomy dungeon where he remained until his martyrdom. Accused of instigating one of the most terrible crimes against the city and the nation, and although totally innocent, he was the object of universal hatred and condemnation. A few friends who had shared the burdens of the apostle now began to leave him. Some, like Demas, deserted, others left on missions to the various churches. Writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, of this experience, Paul said, Only Luke is with me. Never had the apostle needed the ministry of his brothers in Christ as he did now. Enfeebled as he was with age, the years of labor and infirmities confined in the damp, dark Roman prison, the services of Luke, the beloved disciple, his old faithful friend, was a great comfort to Paul. Luke enabled him to communicate with his fellow believers and the outside world. In this trying time, Paul's heart was cheered by frequent visits from Onesiphorus. This warm-hearted Ephesian did all in his power to lighten the burden of the apostles' imprisonment. His beloved teacher was in bonds for the truth's sake while he himself was free. He spared no effort to make Paul's lot as bearable as he possibly could. In the last letter that Paul ever wrote, he speaks about this faithful disciple. And we read in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16 to 80, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. And when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. The desire for love and sympathy is implanted in the human heart by God himself. Christ, in his hour of agony in Gethsemane, longed for the sympathy of his disciples. And Paul, though apparently indifferent to hardship and suffering, yearned for sympathy and companionship from his fellow believers. The visit of Anisiphorus testifying to his fidelity at a time of loneliness and desertion. This brought gladness and cheer to Paul, 
who had spent his life in dedicated service for others. Paul's final destination, this side of eternity, was a spot on the Ostian Way just outside the walls of Rome. Tradition has it that the former Pharisee was beheaded beyond the gates. Paul had fought the good fight, he had finished the race, and he had kept the faith. Thank you for joining me on Souls Under the Altar. I look forward to catching up with you again next time. Until then, may God bless you and keep you faithful. Thank you for joining us on Souls Under the Altar. If you'd like more information about today's program or if you have any questions, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio by phoning 0249733456 or you can send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also contact us on our 3ABN Australia Radio Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you.